and welcome to the Friday, April 14, 2023 edition of On Iowa Politics. On the podcast this week, state lawmakers sent a significant public assistance requirements bill to the governor's desk and introduced new legislation designed to lower Iowans' property taxes. And it was reported that Attorney General Bernard Byrd is reviewing the state's distribution of contraception to rape victims. That's a pretty solid lineup, right? Pretty newsy items, each one, yeah? And guess what? We're not even actually talking about any of those. We have a whole different lineup because that's how much news breaks on the politics and government beats in Iowa these days. That's that's the that's the cutting room floor. So get ready for a good podcast. Here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Gazette and Cedar Rapids. With me this week are Gazette Deputy Bureau Chief Tom Barton. Hello, Tom. Hello, Aaron. We have Lee Des Moines Bureau Chief Caleb McCullough. Good morning, Caleb. Good morning, Aaron. Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times is here. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Aaron. Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal is with us. Greetings, Jared. Aaron, uh, as always, the real Iowa caucus is the friends we made along the way. (laughs) And finally, Gazette columnist Todd Dorman is here. Hello, Todd. Hello. All right. First up, and speaking of those, we've been talking a lot about the Iowa caucuses lately because of all the official and potential 2024 Republican presidential candidates who have been making their way through our great state the past few months. But now we've been talking uh, this week about the Iowa caucuses because of new legislation introduced in the Iowa House of Representatives. And that bill has quickly become a hot topic in political circles. Fortunately for us, this podcast exists almost exclusively within those political circles. So for anyone who might be new to this story, this one requires a pretty decent amount of setup. I'm going to try and give you here. Um, So for those who are already familiar, I apologize Go ahead and take a quick 15 or 30 second nap here because this is all familiar. But for for the newly initiated, here goes. For literally half a century, Iowa was the first state to cast voters presidential preferences in the primary seasons every four years. But in recent election cycles, the state's grasp on that envious first in the nation status has become more tenuous, especially on the Democratic side where national party leaders became increasingly critical of caucuses expressing their preference for primary elections. Then a results reporting app failure in 2020 appeared to give National Democrats the ammunition they needed, as in the months that followed, they announced their intention to rethink their presidential nominating calendar. In an attempt to retain their leadoff spot, Iowa Democrats pledged to completely overhaul their caucuses by moving to a simple mail-in presidential preference system. It did not work. National Democrats changed their calendar anyway and added a new batch of early voting states, which did not include in Iowa. Meantime, Iowa Republicans clearly became nervous about how the Democrats' proposed caucus changes would impact their first-in-the-nation status that they managed to hang on to. Which brings us finally to this week. And that new bill from Iowa Republican state lawmaker Bobby Kaufman, who also was the son of Republican state party Chairman Jeff Kaufman, and that bill would require caucus participants to cast their presidential preference in person. Republicans contend the proposed legislation, which would effectively nullify Democrats' new mail-in plan, is needed to preserve Iowa's first-in-the-nation caucus status, which, again, it bears reminding here, is only now an issue for Republicans uh, because Democrats' first-in-the-nation status is no more. All right, everybody up to speed now? Uh, Quiz tomorrow. Uh, so do your studying. Uh, Caleb, clearly at this point, I've yammered on for way too long, so I'm not going to do a whole lot of big setup here with the question to you. I'll just kick it to you. You covered some legislative action on the bill this week. You talked to a few folks outside the Capitol about it. Give us some highlights of what you've heard 
and learned uh, about this bill? Yeah, so as you can expect, uh, there's a lot of competing opinions on this one. So um, Democrats' central argument um, seems to be that uh, you know this, that this is a premature uh, adjustment to the process, that we don't really know what New Hampshire is going to do because Iowa has not submitted its plan yet um, to kind of how they're actually going to conduct this caucus by mail. Uh, now we did get, uh, you know, earlier this week, um, New Hampshire uh, Secretary of State David Scanlon um, threw a tweet from the GOP chair of an email, a screenshot of an email. He said, if it looks anything like a primary, including a mail-in process, uh, New Hampshire will have to, you know, jump ahead. So th the threat is there, um, but Democrats are still, you know, saying this is this is premature. Um, and then during so, so the the bill passed out of committee this week, and during that committee, um, Democrats put up a protest by submitting um, several amendments that were a lot of thinly veiled and not so thinly veiled suggestions that this was really an attempt to uh, tip the Republican caucuses in Donald Trump's favor. Um, because there's another, and this is mainly targeted at there's another provision of the bill that would require people to register uh, with a certain party 70 days before the caucus in order to participate in the caucus. Currently, you can register on the day of. And so and, and so th these these bill there are these amendments were targeted, you know, kind of at, at that provision. And uh, Kaufman, in addition to being the son of the GOP chair, is also a paid senior advisor to Trump's 2024 campaign. And so Democrats offered uh, amendments that would disqualify Trump from participating in the caucuses, things like denying participation to someone who is under active investigation for elections related crimes. Um, and these are, you know, as other people have mentioned, these are patently, apparently unconstitutional, and they weren't intended to uh, succeed. It was just more of a protest in that way. And then they they, they offered another amendment that would restrict a person from voting on these types of bills if they were employed by a campaign, another kind of jab at Kaufman there. Um, but then kind of looking outside the Capitol, I spoke with uh, Derek Muller. He's a professor of law at the University of Iowa, um, specializing in election law. He said it, that the bill itself may not be constitutional, um, and that and that was an opinion that was shared by Scott Brennan, a member of the DNC um, from Iowa. And so Mueller's argument is that you know the state doesn't have the power to interfere with a party's internal affairs. That there's some case law that deals with um, that. I I'm not a lawyer, but you know that that was <laughs> that was his opinion. Kaufman himself disagrees. Um, he says that uh, he he. he I didn't get too deep into it, but he disagrees with that um, interpretation. So a lot Bobby of Kaufman also not a lawyer, though. Uh, correct. correct. Pointing out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that's where that's where uh, that's where things are at, it seems. Yeah, it's so complicated and interesting. Um, just so many inter interesting elements to this story already and then moving forward. And, and because there's still a lot of unanswered questions, um, uh, like you alluded to, Caleb, if the law does pass, is it is it constitutional? What will Iowa Democrats plan actually look like? They they they, uh, they pointed out yesterday throughout this that their plan isn't 100% final yet and that nobody uh, um, knows exactly what it will look like. Uh, so, so, you know, their contention was that some of these complaints are, are premature. Um, if they do go forward with this, though, and then if New Hampshire does um, view it um, as a threat, will they follow through on their promise to start a game of caucus leapfrog? And will we have caucuses 
and Halloween. That's that's Todd. That's the big one, right? That they uh, a few years back uh, this came up, and I can't remember which state started the ball rolling then. And the and the threat was we're going to wind up with caucuses on Halloween because everybody keeps uh, moving everybody forward. Do you remember that? Do you know what I'm talking about? It was before yeah. my time, but I've heard about it. Yeah, I think that was the that was the year. It might have been 08 that we ended yeah, up that with sounds right. that we ended up with like Christmas time caucuses i think they were like right after it was like the, the monday after new year's or something like yeah, that yeah yeah so uh the candidates tried to figure out how to campaign you know knock on someone's doors and maybe sing a carol and then <laughs> and then uh you know hand them some literature and something like that but <laughs> sorry to interrupt your christmas eve uh but <laughs> I was going to say, Aaron, you know, with, with all the, the preamble you sort of gave, because obviously there was a lot that happened before this point, it would be a bit of a mistake for Democrats to assign a lot of the blame of the cause of death of the caucuses to the legislation this week, you know, because obviously this bill doesn't do them any favors, um, but the caucuses for the Democrats <laughs> were already flatlining for this week. Yeah, so. that, that was a big dot, 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 however, uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Caleb, and I got to make a confession here. Um, I, I was allowing my attention to be pulled in multiple directions as we record here. So forget, did, did you mention the 70-day um, requirement in, in the bill? I okay. did, yeah. Yeah, so that's another interesting really part about this, and, and I'm hearing, you know, I, I get the argument for that, um, but hearing a lot of people uh, – uh, reacting with a sort of, hey, whoa, uh, to that um, specific element. Um, so design because they're worried about cross-caucus participation now that there's a possibility that the Iowa Republicans and Iowa Democrats won't necessarily go on the same night. So if they don't, um, you know, Republicans are worried that literally thousands of Democrats will show up to caucus and and try and put their thumbs on the scale Um for one candidate over the other and and the prevailing theory there would be that they would uh although i guess you could argue either way when it comes to president trump that you know you, you could argue that a bunch of democrats would show up and try to sink president trump um because they don't like him but i suppose if they're being that creative you could argue they might show up um and and, and try to support president trump because they may see him as the candidate that they have the best chance to beat in the general so who knows um point being that's why they put that requirement in there that someone has to be registered with the party 70 days before the caucuses but man for those of us who have covered caucuses in the past and and um uh I'm, i know a lot of people listening already are familiar with this but but maybe for those don't a lot happens in those last 70 days before the caucuses a lot of interest uh continually grows in that last ramp up uh, to February, whatever it is, early February, typically, um, that would be a really stunning measure if that were put in place and would just completely change the 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 way the caucuses operate. And and uh, I, I like I said, I heard a lot of um, hesitation over that specific element, even uh, apart from the the bill at large. Yeah. One thing that really just strikes me about what this bill is kind of unlocking is just that there are so many and i mean this has been you know the whole time but so many competing interests around this from like 20 different parties and it seems like none of them are talking to each other and so that makes things 100 times harder i mean you have the iowa gop iowa democrats the state of iowa 
And then all those, you know, entities in New Hampshire, the Democrats in each of the early Democratic states, the DNC at large. I mean, if they all just like got in a room and, and hashed it out, I wonder if things would be easier. But, you know, who knows? And uh, another thing that probably doesn't help with all of this is that the person who's considered the front runner in the GOP in 2016 when he lost in Iowa said that the Iowa caucuses were fraudulent then mm-hmm. and that Ted Cruz won, you know, by cheating, basically. So, you know, and- that's – <laughs> yeah, and asked the Republican Party of Iowa chairman Jeff Kaufman to announce that he won, uh, even though he hadn't. So yeah, which which also is just a, a an amazing thing to look back and remember now, knowing what we know now. Obviously, right that here we had this uh, early warning flare uh, on the day of the of the uh, 2016 Iowa caucuses. All right. Um, man, that's that, like I said, that's so interesting. It's so, it, it, it would be so impactful. It, it also speaks to how much we still don't know about the Democrats process and what it's going to look like and what it means. Uh, so obviously there will be more discussion on this, um, in future on Iowa politics, uh, podcast, the caucus season is never truly over. Um, All right, moving on, but staying in the legislature uh, this week, the House also passed legislation that would allow firearms to be carried and stored out of sight in cars in public parking lots at places like schools, colleges and and state correctional facilities. Um, It's pretty easy to imagine why some folks were, let's say, hesitant to embrace this bill. Um, So let's let's cut. Let's th- that's the easy part to figure out. Uh, so let's uh, go straight to uh, a, a more interesting question, Tom, for the supporters of this legislation. Why did they say that this was needed? And I believe you're working maybe, Tom, on a story on this for the weekend as well. So tell us a little bit about that. And, and but start with uh, what, what's the argument for this bill that it should it should be OK for Iowans to have uh, guns in their cars in places like school parking lots? Yeah, so Representative uh, Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, and the bill's floor manager said that the bill would protect Second Amendment rights and allow more freedom for responsible gun owners. Um, So Holt, as well as a representative for the Iowa Firearms Coalition, who I spoke to following House passage of the bill, um, said that it would protect the rights of law-abiding gun owners while maintaining strict restrictions around um, weapons um, in or near schools. you know, they rebuffed Democrats' claims that allowing guns in more areas would increase violence. Um, and Holt said that uh, perpetrators of mass shootings at schools are generally um, not parents or spouses who are picking up or, or dropping off people at, at school, um, and said that um, he uh, would feel more comfortable when law abiding citizens are allowed to carry a a firearm and that um, he feels uh, vulnerable in um, a a gun-free zone um, because, quote, I know that mentally ill individuals who have decided to commit violence against other human beings don't care what the law is. Um, So a representative for the Iowa Firearms Coalition said that, you know, individuals now are forced to leave what 
he termed to be um, a defensive firearm at home because they're not allowed to um, have them where they go, um, whether to work or in their vehicle, um, including those who work at Iowa Correctional Facilities, um, and referred to um, you know uh, gun-free zones um, at the, the places that you listed, Aaron, um, to be phony um because um um these are um are um what he termed to be um you know public um non-secure areas um and i pointed out well you know this would apply to um parking lots of um prisons correctional facilities and, and courthouses where there is security and his argument is well yeah but there isn't security um, in, in the parking lots, and then th this um, pertains to, um, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, um, I, I believe the language of the bill talks about public non-secure um, parking areas. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the argument there is um, that, um, you know, um, criminals and, 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 and people who are mentally ill or who um, intend to commit violence um don't care about what he deemed you know magical signs that say you know no guns allowed or this is a a gun-free zone or a gun uh, um yeah gun-free zone um in 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 so saying that you know law-abiding uh citizens law-abiding islands um you know should be able to have the right to um again have what he termed to be a defensive weapon um with them um, so long as it's properly secured in a locked vehicle out of sight um, in that right now, excuse me, um, you know, people are, are violating the law either willingly or unintentionally because, you know, they have a firearm with them and, you know, they're traveling to school to, you know, pick up or drop off students or, um, you know, in the case of people that work at these correctional institutions, you know, they're driving to work and, um, you know, have a, a, a firearm in their vehicle for protection. Um, um, so um, the the debate on the bill, you know, became charged and, and emotional at times when lawmakers spoke about um, friends or constituents that were involved in gun violence incidents. Um, and after the bill's passage, Democratic lawmakers read a list of every um, school shooting since the 1999 um, Columbine High School shooting. Um, Holt, you know, did stress that people would be allowed to have guns in their cars on school grounds, um, or excuse me, the, the, the individuals that would be allowed to have guns in their cars on school grounds would only be those with a valid uh, permit to carry handguns, um, meaning that they've passed a background check, um, have undergone training. Um, and, uh, and as I mentioned, guns and other weapons would um, not be allowed, or excuse me, another provision says that guns and, and other weapons would not be allowed in school vehicles that carry students, except in cases when um, the school district has a policy of allowing staff members to, to carry guns. And I believe at least two school districts in Iowa, Spirit Lake, and I think Cherokee have approved such policies. Um, 
you know, it's worth noting that, that this is kind of the latest expansion of gun rights by the Republican-controlled Iowa legislature, um, which has passed several laws loosening or repealing gun regulations in recent years, including um, a 2021 law eliminating the requirement for Iowans um, to have to uh, uh, have a permit to carry or possess handguns. Um, and last fall, Iowa voters approved the ballot measure adding language to the Iowa Constitution um, that states that it is a fundamental individual right to keep and bear arms and that any restraint on that right is invalid unless it meets the, the stringent demands of strict scrutiny in court. Um, that measure passed 65% to 35%. And um, it's, it's worth noting that that language sets a high legal bar and goes beyond protections contained in the Second Amendment um, by dictating the level of judicial review Iowa courts would have to apply when um, considering whether gun restrictions in the state are permissible. Yeah, it was one of those um, in Iowa. I didn't fi I didn't cover it, but I was um, in the chamber when they were debating it. It was it was one of those interesting kind of moments where it, you know there's the optics of a legislation uh, of a bill uh, of, of of its contents and when it passes, uh, kind of respective to other things that are going on in the world. And of course. You know, the sad thing is, as I say that, because I was about to say, you know, this bill gets passed and 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 there's as as you noted in there, Tom, there's arguments about why that, you know, that people can make about why they feel that it 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 isn't, you know, fair to tie this bill to school shootings that that's a debate they can make. Um, uh, but that said, it the optics of passing a bill like this, something that's uh, making it legal to bring guns very close to schools um so close to recent school shootings has some i think um uh, let, let's be polite and say noteworthy optics of course as i say that um anymore and this is just facts uh when could you wait to pass a bill that wouldn't be near a school shooting so i guess you gotta uh do it whenever because uh, you get one week away from one and there's another one so there's never uh, a time to avoid those optics I suppose if, if if you go on the the National Library of uh, Medicine's website, there's a uh, collection of articles from a number of different publications over the last several years now um, that basically are making the same point over and over again that the looser a state's gun laws are, the more mass shootings it has. That's uh, article collections that are on the National Library of Medicine's website, which makes sense in some respects because no matter what your gun laws are in a state, if someone in their mind is already committed to the idea of going out and killing a bunch of people, there's not really much that's going to stop them mentally from doing that, not knowledge of what the state's laws are or, or anything like that. So there, there's that aspect of it, I would say, too. Yeah, yeah, and I think that was part of the the debate here too. And, and Tom touched on some of that. And and look, if if you think about this, um, currently, are we going to pretend that there are no guns in in cars right now that are, as people are dropping their kids off at schools or or parking in the hospital parking lot? I I, I know I know what I would bet my modest uh, journalist salary on. Um, now that said, I I totally get the. The, the opposition to this and, and arguments um, against legislation that this that explicitly also says in law, hey, we're cool with that, uh, too. So so it, it, it genuinely is an interesting debate. And I know, Tom, you're looking into some kind of um, tangential possible impacts of this, too. Uh, so that'll be a, an interesting story. Watch watch for Tom's uh, story this weekend.
Tom mentioned um, some of the, the condemnations of the bill, and I uh, would be remiss if I didn't point out that one of the sharpest rebuttals came from uh, Sioux City Rep uh, J.D. Scholten, who, after the uh, debate on the bill, talked about a friend who died due to gun violence and mm -hmm. said, um, this bill, the level of not giving a shit is impressive. So that was yeah. that was his thoughts on the yeah. debate. And at, at, after, or, you know, when he said that, um, there was some parliamentary scuffles the, the 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 house majority leader called a point of order and you know there was kind of a big stir and um talking to and and the not not the speaker but the the representative who was in the speaker's chair at the time you know gave a gave a little lecture about we're going to have decorum in this chamber and all that so it it raised some uh some feathers ruffled some feathers yeah by the way side note which that was literally the only five to ten minutes i was gone from the chamber i got up yeah to use the little journalist room. And that's when that happened. The, that's Murphy's law uh, to a T right there. Side note. All right. We're going way off track here, but I love this story. So I got to tell it and, and keep this in because podcast listeners are over this too. I went to the Milwaukee Brewer game uh, a few years back when, and you don't have to be a Brewers fan to remember this because it made national headlines. You probably need to be a baseball fan. So the sausage races that they do during the seventh inning stretch, the people in big hot dog sausage, bratwurst costumes that race around uh, the, the, the field. And during one game a few years back, one of the players from the visiting team, because uh, they run right by the dugouts, kind of stuck his bat out to Joe Randall Simon. Randall Simon. See it, Jared knew it. Yep. And he knocked over the racing sausage and the, it became as these things often do became such a ridiculous thing. They literally hauled the player down to the police station after the game to now that he never got charged with anything, but the fact that they even did that was, but it was this whole big deal. Oh my God. A Pittsburgh pirates player knocked over one of the racing sausages with his bat. I was at that game. I've gone to literally dozens upon dozens of Milwaukee Brewers games in my life. And I never skip the sausage race except that night i went to the bathroom during the seventh inning stretch i was at that game and i flip and missed it unbelievable all right <laughs> moving on uh i wanted to uh highlight again a, a, a story that sarah wrote uh this past week because i think it's a perfect illustration um of the impact legislation passed at the state house can have in iowa communities we talk so much about bills and the process and debate and blah, blah, blah. And I think it's easy to uh, sometimes lose sight of uh, this stuff actually has impacts out there. Um, and we touched on this story a little bit last week too, uh, but Sarah had a follow-up this week that dives into the into the issue even further. Um, so Sarah, our favorite social media savvy community uh, in Eastern Iowa is deciding uh, whether to raise its tax levy after its expected budget came up shorthanded due to an error by the state and then a fix that left gov local governments wanting. Um, so Sarah, for those who didn't catch last week's podcast and didn't hear about this, uh, give us the real quick uh, history of how we got here and then tell us about your reporting this week and, and, and how the community of Bettendorf is dealing with the fallout of all this. Yeah, so yeah, like you said, the, um, the state uh, you know, needed to recalculate how uh, property taxes um, were calculated and uh, and that really left it left property tax uh, 
or property owners with, uh, you know, lower tax bills than expected, but also left local governments kind of holding the bag on uh, uh, less revenue than expected. So Bettendorf kind of made this humorous Final Four video um, where they were putting the, their budgets up against each other and in matchups and and they settled on uh, in deciding how, how they would go about uh, budgeting for uh, local services like streets, libraries, parks, things like that. And so I, um, I actually wanted to talk about the, the three different uh, main communities that I cover in the Iowa side of the Quad Cities to kind of illustrate probably what a lot of local governments are uh, doing right about now or have done in the last couple weeks, because I think it's probably pretty representative of the different options that people could do. So in uh, in Bettendorf, they lost or they had about $900,000 that they uh, weren't going to get because of this, uh, this correction. And so right now, next week, they're going to be having a public hearing on their budget and will possibly be raising the uh, levy by a nickel, which really, honestly, for the property taxpayer, it's only about $7 in annual property taxes more um, for the average house. So it's it's not a huge impact and it's about, um, uh, it's a couple hundred thousand dollars in the, uh, in the in Bettendorf's budget, um, and that would pay for a uh, a plan reviewer in the city's planning city's planning department. But it sounds I'm hearing that city um, staff are trying to look for a way to make up that extra money. Since in, in the scope of things, in a ninety million dollar budget, it's you know a couple hundred thousand dollars isn't isn't a huge amount um, to try to cover. So. Uh, so, you know, that's one option that they're looking at is, is raising the tax levy. In uh, another community in Davenport, they had about $1.7 million that they weren't um, going to get. And they just, they use reserves actually from uh, previous state backfill funds that they just, they hadn't budgeted for, assuming that they would dwindle and go away. So they used essentially reserves to cover that funding. And then Probably the most interesting and the most recent news is Scott County just last night voted on their budget and they uh, did cuts. So Bettendorf looking at raising the levy a little bit, Davenport using reserves and Scott County is making cuts. So they ended two contracts with uh, local area nonprofits um, for to make up a $1.6 million budget shortfall and uh, one of those nonprofits is called the Center for Active Seniors Incorporated, and they are a senior services agency. The county um, funds a, uh, a place, one of their services called Jane's Place, which offers memory care day services. It's a really unique uh, center. There's not a lot like it in the, in the state. And um, so they decided to cut funding for that. They were already considering that in January before this decision rolled out. Um, and then they uh, also decided to end a second contract of about $165,000 with uh, for senior outreach services. And last night, I kid you not, close to 100 seniors packed the Scott County Board of Supervisors room, which for a local meeting is like unheard of. <laughs> it's probably the most I've seen in there. So, uh, and they were all just really, a lot of people really talked about these emotional um, connection that they had with KSI and personal experiences that they had using KSI services 
um, and how devastating it would be if KSI were to close its doors because of these funding cuts that Scott County is implementing July 1st. Um, one person talked about how, uh, you know, if they if they didn't have KSI's services when their spouse passed away, they probably wouldn't be alive. And people talked about how they brought parents to KSI for uh, memory care during the day and it allowed them to work. It was an affordable option for them. Uh, so definitely a really a long and emotional meeting last night as uh, you know, those were kind of the real impacts um, of of Scott County's budgeting decisions and of uh, this lack of funding that they had to try to account for. Um, I will say too, the Scott County supervisors kept the levy flat. So they did these cuts in instead of raising the levy. So that's kind of three different options that local governments are using. And I thought it was probably representative of across the state of how this is impacting local localities. Yeah, so that's awesome. That's perfect. That's great. Like I said, it's it, especially for those of us who are buried in this daily at the Capitol, uh, you know, when these things are being debated and passed, a lot of a lot of the uh, talk about potential impacts of this stuff is still hypothetical. So this is a great example of uh, a tangible effect of, of some of this uh, legislation uh, that got passed earlier this session and, and how different communities are having to deal with that. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that, Sarah. All right. Uh, finally, this week, uh, out on the caucus trail, the actual caucus trail, not, not the caucus bill, uh, the, the, the campaign stuff. Um, Jared reported this week that uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is making his triumphant return to Iowa in May. Uh, for an event with Western Iowa Congressman Randy Feenstra, um, who I also saw, by the way, that uh, Congressman Feenstra, it was just announced, is doing an event with Governor Santos out at D.C. So I have a second question remind me to ask you, Jared. Um, so Governor Santos is not one of the many candidates who accepted the Iowa Faith and Freedom Coalition's big um, uh, multi-candidate event uh, invitation on April 22nd. Uh, this coming Saturday, uh, but uh, he is obviously coming back a few weeks later for Congressman Feenstra's event. Is there anything to draw from that, uh, Jared, that he decided to not to come to Iowa Faith and Freedom, but he's come back a few weeks later? Um, or is that just a matter of scheduling? And and I hadn't originally thought of this question, but now I see Congressman Feenstra do an event with him out in um, D.C. too. Um, is he going to is Congressman Feenstra going to endorse here? Is Are we seeing an early lineup, or is he just being playing good Iowa host? Well, uh, something I definitely drew, um, and I noted in my story about this, uh, from Feenstra's announcement that DeSantis would be the main speaker for his third annual family picnic, is that in 2021, uh, the featured guest of the event was former Vice President Mike Pence who hasn't declared yet, but is considered uh, far more likely to run in 2024 than not. Uh, last year, the Feenster family picnic main guest was former UN ambassador Nikki Haley, who of course is officially running now. Um, so what does that mean for uh, Florida Governor uh, Ron DeSantis then? Um, in, in some ways, him doing an event like that feels like an even surer sign that he's gonna be running because like, you know, the, the appearances with Reynolds could be spun as Republican governors, you know, palling around or whatever. But a Florida governor coming to the most Republican part of the state, a part of the state that Ted Cruz had better luck with than Donald Trump in 2016, 
to hang out with a congressional rep is is a little bit different. That's a that's a little bit more out of your way sort of uh, trip to make. Um, as for the the Iowa Faith and uh, Freedom Coalition event, it, it is notable that uh, Trump's going to be participating in that, although remotely, if I remember correctly. Um, but I, I think still as of now, DeSantis is not going to be participating in any way. Like, and I've said it before on the show, and I'll mention it again. Uh, if he is going to be running, he can't continue to just not appear where Trump is appearing if he wants to to win the primary. That, that's not really a, a valuable uh, or a viable strategy for, for running in an election. And, and how about uh, Congressman Feenstra? Am I reading into that too much that he's he, ha- he invited him to the barbecue and now he's doing a thing out with him in D.C.? Is it, or is, am I reading too much it, into that? It, it would be even more notable if DeSantis had actually – declared at yeah, this point yeah but it is still worth pointing out to, to be making a trip to dc and making a trip out here to to hang around with one of the state's four congressional reps yeah um i mean Todd, oh sorry go ahead go ahead Todd. I, I, I was just gonna say i i think it, to me it just um uh further signals or, or solidifies the fact that um you know randy feenstra is going to be kind of an influential power broker um yeah. in the in the uh, 2024 um iowa gop caucuses yeah, yeah and really, really like oh sorry go ahead jared like yes like steve king obviously had uh, events in the past where like ted cruz and people like that would come out for pheasant hunts and and things like that but some of this stuff now with feenstra with these family picnics and everything feel like a, a level above even those kind of past Steve King events that he would do out in this corner of the state. And, and that, that, that raises a, a good point that I hadn't thought about. It's going to be interesting to see how each of the four uh, congressional representatives sort of conduct themselves through this. Uh, are, are they going to endorse? Are they going to play generous host? Um, or how active they're going to be in, 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 in at all? Um, it kind of seems early on, like Ashley Henson's kind of played host, right? She's done multiple <laughs> events with multiple different candidates. Yeah. Right. Yep. So, um, yeah, I, I guess, it, yeah, it, it's worth noting um, Ashley Hinton, too, um, is probably going to be, you know, a pretty influential figure mm-hmm. in um, that uh, 2024 GOP Iowa caucuses. Um, so, you know, talking about Randy Feenstra and, and DeSantis, um, uh, you know, Ashley uh, Hinton, uh, Representative Hinton, excuse me, um, was just with uh, Tim Scott, who mm-hmm. um uh, was in Marion um, on the same day that uh, he officially announced launching an exploratory committee, um, and he headlined um, Representative Henson's annual barbecue bash fundraiser um, last year. Um, and then, you know, she also um, uh, has appeared with um, and, uh, you know, did events with um, uh, with Ambassador Nikki Haley um, leading up to the uh, uh, midterms last fall, and then um, also I, I believe um, was with her for um, uh, uh, official events um, in the last couple weeks or, or last few months. Yeah, and just to, we, go ahead, Kelly. I'm just saying we have, we haven't seen um, Zach Nunn get into much of this. I'm, I'm curious what his uh, annual fundraiser is going to be. If it's going to be a potluck or a fish yeah, fry or what, yeah. what that's going to be. He he I, needs to come up with that, doesn't he? I, I I wanted to ask uh, Aaron and Todd as the uh, the old heads uh, on the uh, on the panel. Uh, do you think some of this just kind of comes down to whoever in the state of the congressional reps is like running up the vote the most in their elections in terms of who gets to kind of have the the biggest say in the primaries? Because obviously, 
in in the primaries that matters more that you're running up your votes as opposed to like winning close you, you don't really care about that as much i wouldn't think but yeah i, I mean you know it, 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 endorsements in the past haven't had a huge impact i mean yeah i mean that's always and i think most of these office holders can you know members of congress are going to basically i mean a lot of these events are fundraisers and so they're going to continue to raise money as long as they can and and withhold their endorsement until if they endorse at all until yeah. late in the game but uh you know the the it's actually a democratic campaign that i think of when i think of whether endorsements matter i mean you had howard dean in 04 he got harkin's endorsement tom harkin he got al gore's endorsement late in the game and he was supposedly had all the momentum but in the end none of that really none of that really carried him and he got third so uh, i think the the endorsements are good because you know it, it gives you a chance to share the stage with with you know politicians that are supported by our Republicans, but in the end, they're going to decide, you know, which one of these candidates has the best chance of beating Joe Biden. And, and uh, that's, I mean, that's basically going to be the, the final analysis, who, that, that, regardless of who endorses them. Yeah. And that's a good point you raise about the fundraising, Todd, that when they, when those presidential candidates come here and they do events with these congressional representatives, they're, they're fundraisers that they both benefit from. So as a congressional representative, as Zach Nunn or Ashley Hinson, why would you endorse one candidate and cut yourself off from 15 others who could also come do an event with you? Uh, so that so maybe we won't see at least early on endorsements uh, for these um, uh, so they can still have wax at all those pinatas. Um, Sarah, real quick, um, Marionette Miller Meeks, I don't haven't heard a lot about her um, palling around with some of these, but maybe that's just because she doesn't read a lot about it and and but maybe she's actually out there I, I honestly don't know do you have any sense of how involved in this she's been thus far she was before the midterm elections she had nikki haley come campaign for her and then i i believe it was tim scott in iowa city it was rick came. scott right or rick's sorry got my scots confused <laughs> um <laughs> uh so uh so she she uh people you know national political figures came to Iowa to campaign for her uh, at the midterm elections. But since then, I I haven't seen any events that she's held with, with some of these folks. Yeah, interesting. So that'll be interesting to see how involved she gets too. Um, Todd, let me put a pin on this and, and uh, circle back to Governor DeSantis. And uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I didn't throw this question on our list of topics to get to, but um, I'm just curious to get your take on um, as we record Friday morning, I, I say the words last night. So uh, late Thursday night, uh, Governor DeSantis signed a, a big um, abortion restriction bill into law in Florida. Um, I'm curious. So that's uh, it seems to me is going to be an interesting issue to see how it plays throughout this process, because because it's one of those candidates are going to want to play it a certain way in the primary. But based on what we're seeing elsewhere, um, in, in some other states uh, in recent elections and, and um, uh, ballot measures, it's they're probably going to want to then try and play it a different way in, in the general election. So to Governor DeSantis specifically and, then, and or more generally, um, how do you see that specific issue playing a role uh, in, in this caucus season and then beyond? Well, it's a 
it's always been a big issue with with Cocker scores, which tend to be sort of the more ideologically, uh, you know, steadfast voters that that uh, they, they care about that issue and they expect you to be 100 percent pro-life. And and so if you want to have a chance in the caucuses, you have to have that record. And I mean, and that's, you know, that's always going to cause problems. You know, Republican candidates, their base expects them to take some fairly extreme positions on multiple issues. And so then the question is, how do you pivot into the general election where people may not be down with all that stuff? And and the answer is you, you just you really can't. I mean, DeSantis's whole brand is is sort of the, you know, anti-woke you know, all of this, all of these culture war issues. I mean, I, I have no idea what his tax policy is. I don't know what his economic growth <laughs> policies are. I do know that he likes to, he wants books removed and wants to punish Disney for criticizing him and, and, uh, and, you know, don't say gay, Bill, all that stuff. So that's what, that's his brand. And so that's, he's coming into a state with a caucus electorate that probably is, pretty positive about that but and i don't i don't know that there's anything he can do I, I guess at that at that point you do what republicans have done in the past is you is you turn your you know you turn your attacks on joe biden and his age and all the various things mistakes that he's made so you make it about biden and not about DeSantis. i guess that that would be that would be the main yeah main strategy yeah. i would i would think it's, it's just going to be interesting to me to see how much they're able to avoid that once we get to the general election, because like I said, it, it, the, the, the examples are piling up here. Uh, the most recent one is the Wisconsin Supreme Court election just a short time ago that that was expected to be close and wasn't at all. And in large part because of young vote uh, turnout on college campuses and which was very clearly motivated around one issue. Well, Jared, it looked well, like you were going to say something. Yeah, and, and to that point with like the Wisconsin thing, you know, Todd was talking about some of the, the party faithful and everything like that. The results from like the Wisconsin one in particular, I saw even like party like deep, deep died in the wool, party faithful spooked about the election results in a place like Wisconsin and like party strategists for the Republican Party saying we have to find a way to modulate at least the message somehow when we're when we're talking about this. And yeah, and I saw some of that too. And and former Governor Scott Walker um, had a tweet ab along those lines and and was uh, getting roasted a bit uh, for it because um, he was essentially uh, suggesting that the problem isn't the Republicans' position on the issue; it's that they're they're messaging on it. And and look, I, I'm not I'm not here to tell anybody how they should feel about that issue. Um, either way, that's a personal choice. But look, historically, the data is clear about where a majority of public feels about abortion um and that has only gone up as it's now become an even more tangible uh, issue and 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 impactful issue with the with the repeal of roe um and uh look i'll be i could be proven wrong but this is just my view of it i i, I don't i don't know how the messaging does change for republicans you, you it, it is what it is and it has been for 50 freaking years you're not going to come up with a new catchphrase that's going to move the needle on how people feel about this issue because all of a sudden they're going to think about abortion differently what's changing now is like i said it's it's a more tangible issue it used to be more theoretical because of roe versus wade now it's more tangible and now more young people are getting involved in elections um and and they very clearly have a decided lean on this so i think 
that's the problem for Republicans, not messaging. Yeah, well, and it's, I mean, this is not a new problem. They've been, you know, you could argue they've been running on some unpopular ideas for a long time. I mean, when's the last time a Republican presidential candidate won the popular vote in this country? I mean, so running on stuff that's unpopular and sort of, you know, focusing on how you can win the electoral college without getting the most votes. And I mean, that's kind of the way Republicans get elected president now. So uh, being unpopular may not may not hurt them as much as it should if we and, just and voted yeah. straight up. Yeah. And that's and that's why I say that's why it's, it's different now. Right. Because abortion clearly was never a voting issue at the end of the day. Uh, for for enough people for it to matter elections for the longest time, and I think part of that was because people felt protected. It didn't it didn't matter how they voted because yeah. abortion laws weren't going to change one way or the other. I mean, not, it's hurting them. In the, that's, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm saying it's it's hurting them in the suburbs where they could potentially gain votes from folks who are more conservative on on other issues. But I mean, when you when you I mean, it's, and and some of the the bills passed across the country are pretty draconian criminal penalties, penalizing people that help. Now talking about Ill- making it illegal to get the drugs you need for a a chemical abortion. I mean, it's these are pretty extreme positions. And and I mean, you know, back in here in Iowa, you know, we don't know what the Supreme Court's going to do. They, you know, they may kick. They may look at this messy procedural case they've got in front of them and say, you know what, maybe the legislature should pass a bill, and then we'll then we'll go through this process like normal. And so then, you know, then that forces Republicans here to sort of decide what kind of bill they want. And there's going to be push a push from some segments of the caucus for for a, a, a pretty extreme bill. And so that that's going to complicate things in 2024 if they have to go through that debate next session. So, Absolutely. yeah, it's a, it's a tough issue for Republicans. And, uh, and and they there's there's really no way to hide from it. They just have to they just have to either avoid talking about it or avoid debates or avoid public forums or all the things some of them have been doing already. But yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly energized Democrats at a time where, you know, maybe they were feeling pretty yeah, uh, and, doom, and, doom and gloom about their prospects. Yeah. And again, I, I don't think I can emphasize enough that the young voters is, like I said, especially what we saw coming out of Wisconsin. Um, that was, that was pretty remarkable. Um, and, uh, I, I don't think that's going away. I, I, I really don't. Um, you know, a lot of times when we talk about issues, um, we say, of course, as we talk about that now, the election, um, there will be a new issue in two weeks, much less in, you know, 18, 16 months, whatever we are out, uh, from the election. Um, I, 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 I don't think that's the case here. I, I think this one, because of, the way it has unfolded within the last year or so, uh, I think this is going to be a big issue in in this um, in all these campaigns, and it, and it's going to be really fascinating to watch. And guess what? The whole ride, we'll be talking about it here on on Iowa politics. But that's for future podcasts. That's it for this one. If you enjoyed it, tell your friends. Subscribe to us on streaming audio services like iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon. And now that you've listened to the On Iowa Politics podcast, make sure you're also subscribed to the On Iowa Politics newsletter, where every morning in your inbox, you'll receive all the latest politics and government coverage from our team. You can subscribe to that free newsletter at the Gazette's website, thegazette.com. Lastly, don't forget that the work of everyone you heard here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Muscatine Journal, Cedar Rapids Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, Mason City Globe Gazette, Council Bluffs, Daily Nonpareil, 
and the Sioux City Journal. Did you catch that? I did it. I put them in geographically. That was east, that was east to west. All right. Austin Taft will play us out this week. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be featured on the podcast, send us a sound file. For the whole team, Tom Barton, Caleb McCullough, Sarah Watson, Jared McNett, Todd Dorman, and our producer, Stephen Colbert, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thank you all for listening. Situation. This frustration continues to. Be-